They think that by putting negative on their profile, that is better than putting positive or undetectable, and they're more likely to get a hookup and more likely to get attention and sex. That's like boasting about the fact that you're white in a racist world, or boasting that you're a man in a sexist world. It's bullshit. This is In The Key Of Q, featuring musicians from around the world who inspire my queer identity. Everybody is welcome to the conversation, whatever beautiful identity pleases you. Music helps us feel connected and know that we are not alone. This program is made possible thanks to the financial support of listeners like you over at patreon.com slash in the key of Q. And remember to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Dan Hall. Tune in and be heard. My guest this week is one of the few out rappers bursting onto the alternative London queer music scene in 2004. His raps blend humor with genuinely horny chat, rewarding us with gay sexualized music identity that still in 2021 is ahead of its time. His stage name was the inspiration behind the title of this podcast, and I've been a fan of his for nearly 20 years. So it's a big fanboy welcome to Marcus Brito, aka Q-Boy. Hello! Hola, que tal? You okay? I'm very good, thank you. And this is, uh, for those listening, the first in the key of Q that has been recorded in person. Whoop, whoop. So I've been annoying him for hours now, before we even got started. <laughs> I uh, started uh, in 2001 recording as a queer hip-hop artist, rapper, and it was for fun, partly at the time, but I, I, I'd been rapping way before that. I'd been into hip-hop since 88, 89, and throughout the 90s. I wrote poems when I was a lot younger, and then I started writing raps. They turned into raps around about 14, 15, 16 years old, and a lot of the raps were just highly sexualized um, gay versions of Little Kim lyrics, uh, to be honest. And I definitely wrote them with some sort of defiance because I, I thought that if straight rappers can talk constantly about their sex lives, then um, anyone who's openly gay and rapping should be able to do the same and shouldn't sort of soften it or make it more palatable because they're talking about uh, sex with uh, men, or me men or men sex. Why rap though as a genre? What uh, first of all is a direct? Listener. It's direct. Uh, it was the energy of the youth. It still is the energy of the youth. But at the time, hip hop was perceived to be homophobic in the nineties. It was perceived to be homophobic because of the gangster rap plan that the major record labels had put into uh, gear since ninety four. And so from ninety four onwards, all of the positive conscious fun, many different styles of decent hip-hop all sort of evaporated and wasn't being funded, and the only thing that was being pushed was gangster rap. So at the time, 
it was very important to me be to do the music I was doing and also the DJ I was doing because the DJ started at the same time as the recording to provide something for other people to provide something for myself so that there was some a representation out there and to combat the idea that hip hop is homophobic as well and any of the homophobia that that was you know the backdrop the 90s backdrop for me it was like we had a mission we had a mission to fight the homophobia to fight the idea of hip hop being homophobic and to fight the idea that being gay means being white and listening to Kylie Minogue yeah cuz certainly in the 1990s when i was enjoying london's christine as its most i was sort of in my mid 20s I I loved my Kylie and I love all that stuff, but I don't like only that. And I find it very oppressive when that's all that's offered. Yeah. In the 90s, I had so many different places I could go to that were alternative. Places like Ghetto and Falkenberg Court, places like uh, Pop Stars. These were really iconic spaces. And, and especially Pop Stars, these weren't small apologetic, you know, every three month nights. They were big big events and I don't know whether they still exist now because certainly the queer scene that I see which is maybe a bit different I'm not on the front end anymore I'm nearly 50 but even the bars I go into I'm I'm just sort of hearing pop music I think they're they're, they're definitely coming throughout the 2000s we were all trying to um, provide uh, alternative scenes alternative queer scenes and then there was also a lot of other places like you said that were into indie music and soul and hip-hop if you were queer you could find a club or a party or a circle that you could join and there was even a queer punk scene wasn't there exactly yeah, yeah. and now it's faded out now it's sort of uh, homogenized a bit but i think that's the world over not just the uk I really love rapping and and to, in the sense of I love getting my mouth around a complicated sentence <laughs> and mastering it writing your own lyrics and finding your own voice as everybody always says is the hard part and that definitely took a minute because I didn't want to be American or Americanized it seems silly now but at the time there wasn't so many British rap voices um, and a lot of people who were rappers even if they didn't come from the States still had a slight American twang whereas you've always rapped with a very London, very Essex London accent I and tried just to be, be yourself yeah, be myself which is you know mostly Basildon <laughs> There's a slight well-spoken element of me and there's a slight rough Basildon element of me. Uh, there's a Hispanic uh, African guancha element of me where my family come from. But my voice changes as well. I always, I don't know, each song when I record it, I'm almost, it's almost like a, its own little project and its own story and it has its own vibration. It has its own uh, feel about it. So I will adapt my vocal to the song. So sometimes it might be a little higher pitch, sometimes it might be really low. Like I did a song with Stedman from Five Star and he, I remixed his song and he has very high vocal on the track. So I purposely went very low. So it creates a dynamic, uh, but it's probably lower than I would have done in any other song. What was the child world like that you grew up in that helped shape 
this person who became a a, a queer rapper? Um, well, my life has been filled with trauma, <laughs> which is a shame. Um, I'm not going to moan about it too much, uh, and no, um, no shame or disrespect to my parents, but. They were both problematic at times. My mother's lovely and, and she does love me to death, but uh, she was undiagnosed with bipolar for most of my life. And that presented itself as alcohol, alcoholism and very sort of aggressive, erratic behavior. So that I had to grow up around and her sort of having fights with my dad with her instigating it. So uh, my dad quite... No, not responsive and not very communicative um coming from a small catholic based background island in, in the canaries uh my mother had severe postnatal depression when i was born so i wasn't even looked after her for the six seven weeks when i was born i was looked after by my auntie so that has brings its own problems later as an adult <laughs> with connecting to people and trusting people and anxiety and all of that so I feel like uh, there were a lot of instances where I didn't have a great time as a kid, but uh, music definitely has always had a strong, strong input and something I've loved and enjoyed and connected with. I'm a dancer as well. This is the thing is dancing is probably my natural talent. Rapping is not my natural talent. It's just something I like to do. And if I work hard at it, it can sound good. And if I don't, then it won't, <laughs> you know, but dancing, I don't have to think about that. It's not a it's not a practice a practiced thing or something I have to mentally engage in. It's a soul thing. And I, I, I it's meditation for me when I start dancing. And I've always been a dancer. I used to move along to the rhythm of the pestle and mortar because my grandmother was um owned her own restaurant in the Canary Islands and so used to be making food all day long. And so when I was about three or four, I would dance to the rhythm of that in the kitchen. So it's just my hips have the energy and they, they want to move. So for me, music and dancing are very connected. When I became a teenager, I was more depressive. I didn't really have many friends. I was being bullied at school for being gay since I was nine. So that was going on for years. Um, uh, and so I definitely throughout my early teenage years, I was just in my room. I remember the playground being a divisive and pretty shitty place. And I was lucky enough to have in my secondary school to have some good friends who I'm still friends with now, but they couldn't protect me from constantly hearing insults here and there, insults on corridors, teachers saying stuff. Well, it wasn't just school, it was just the general culture. You were a kid on a Sunday seeing homophobic content and then sprawled across the news of the world that all your family was reading. And how are you supposed to feel about that? Mm. Nobody's sticking up for you and that, your family are feeding, are feeding off that same homophobic bullshit as everybody else in the country. So you you don't have any power in that situation and you don't have anyone to turn to because it feels like the entire world is homophobic and therefore you are the problem. 
Section 28 in the UK, which was brought about in the early 80s, was basically a way to, to stop people talking about homosexuality in the classroom. They didn't want to promote it like you can promote homosexuality. Gay, queer, lesbian, you know, teens were being bullied, but were not being protected and teachers didn't know what to do about it because the second they, they stepped in, they were almost going against Section 28. Did you reach out for help at your school? And not oh, yeah, it? yeah, I did. I, I also had to, um, at one point, go to lunch uh, on my own for about a year and a half. I used to go and sit on my, get food from the supermarket and then sit in a council stake on, on a bench away from everyone. And uh, I would leave five minutes before the bell went uh, for each lesson change so that I didn't have to find myself in corridors with any of the other kids or bullies. Queer Boy was the main name that I got called in the corridors and in the playground, which is why I have the name Q-Boy. That's where it came from. And I use queer as well in the title of the podcast in the same way. as a, uh, It was used as a term of abuse and it's a reclamation of language. So you're a teenager now and you're writing rhymes. What is your home life like at this point? My father had left home after many years of fighting my mother and went back to the Canary Islands. So it's my mother, my younger sister and my grandmother. And it's difficult. Like I really just wanted to escape. What's Basildon like? Fucking rough in it, you cunt. <laughs> but I hate it. <laughs> it's just full of old people and idiots. Rough idiots. I needed to get out of Azadin, so I did the, the college. And in college, that's where I first found my confidence. Before you left, you told me what I know. Sand to the beach, ice to the snow. I saw right through this scenario. Analyze the scene, see how we go. The wheel on red and never on green. I had the confidence. So it was mostly ego, but it still, it got me through. And it was a 360 degree uh, feeling from what I'd previously experienced at school. And then I went to university in Leicester. I did a degree in contemporary dance. And then once I'd left that three years later, I moved back down south to London. And then at that point, 2001, was when I initiated uh, working with gayhiphop.com, meeting DJ Mr. Maker, writing our first couple of songs starting our party, DJing, like all of it or just organically came together. And then suddenly I was part of a, a queer hip hop collective of rappers and DJs and singers. I did a search, Gay Hip Hop London, and then gayhiphop.com came up. And I was like, what is this website? What is, what is this? Are, are the gay people that like hip hop? I was astounded and amazed. And this is 2001, there was no Google. There was nothing, you know, like times were different. Mm. <laughs> gay culture and gay magazines we're like ignoring the fact that black people exist and that music, <laughs> that hip hop and R&B exist. And then hip hop culture was just pretending gay people don't exist and pretending that there are no black gays. I knew in 2001, not one label was gonna go, oh, gay rapper, let's sign you. 
I just worked out. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. But you must have been one of the first artists to have done that. The idea of you eschewing and rejecting the standard record industry system and going your own way. To people listening to this now, they might sort of think, oh yeah, that's great. But actually, I think it's important to remember the time in which you did that because people who were not already hugely powerful were not doing that. Like It would make sense if somebody was signed to Warners and they were a huge star and they got to the end of their 20-year contract. They then, yep, absolutely, was set up on their own and that makes sense. But for independent artists alone in the world, it was almost unheard of. Yeah, not just as a queer artist, but just as an indie artist. I was part of that first generation, that MySpace generation, that suddenly had the internet to be able to promote ourselves, connect with fans, build a fan base, put our songs out there, put out content, music videos, you know. that None of that was available to you beforehand as an artist. So I was definitely part of that first generation that was like, well, we're going to do it our way. And then it just went bang, but not because the music was amazing. Nobody was talking about the music, but me. The idea of a gay rapper was so fascinating to the press and to the world that everybody wrote about that story, and that was the angle. And I became the face of gay rap globally, really, because there wasn't anyone else kind of doing it at, at that stage, at that level. And part of that is because I look like the cute white boy that all the other gay press were having on their pages and i was you know I, I was under no illusion that was happening and i think every time i got interviewed i always tried to make sure i mentioned the the other queer hip-hop artists that i was coming up with who were black who were not getting pages who were not having their photos put in magazines who were not being seen you know i made sure that they were like you need to go check out deep dick collective or you need to find tory fix or you know like Days, it was it was my job because I knew I was going to get the the press and the cover and the attention because they like the way I look to make sure I don't forget about the other people. With white audiences, there's been a long history of them needing to get used to blackness bit by bit, you know? And so I was a um, palatable version of hip hop for them. So you have to remember that gay clubs were not playing hip hop. Gay pride events were not having rappers or hip hop or black performers playing any music, performing any music of that nature. And so for them to go from not having that to book in a black rapper, there was a huge chasm, you know, between those two things happening. And I'm the bit in between where I warmed up those white audiences to hip hop and to the notion of rapping and to the notion that gay people like hip hop uh, enough to now we get to the point where black queer artists are getting covers, are being uh, heard, are getting number ones, are being, you know, like they're there now and they're getting the credit and the attention that they deserve. But I was this sort of in-between thing. And I don't know whether that people look on me favorably as that, because I think that I worry sometimes that people think I'm more like Justin Timberlake, where I'm just trying to steal the limelight from Usher. But at the time, there was no Usher. 
I was it. <laughs> it sounds like you are aware that your whiteness did give an ability for the music to be heard and that in order to try to counterbalance things, you, you made sure that you always mentioned the name of the other black artists who were around who weren't, didn't have access to And discuss the fact why they weren't being mentioned in the magazine to say magazines won't put black queer artists on like these gay magazines won't put their faces on the covers yet like you have to you have to say it you have to call it out yeah so at this point you've released your first ep and you continue to release music uh across the years up until 2016 did you find you were compromising anything along the way or what were you finding was influencing or changing you because the world changed a lot for queer people between 2004 and 2016 so for you as a rapper what was changing i had nobody telling me this is a good idea this is a bad idea no one to bounce ideas off judgment all of that stuff no one in the industry you know no one in the music industry in the hip-hop industry and like I didn't have that support or structure behind me. So I think that I suffered because of that as in some, some ways. Creatively or creatively uh, and um, uh, uh, productively. And I was just spending a lot of time in my room, hours and days and months and years um, trying to do everything myself and, and burnt myself out a lot. I was going in two directions. Part of me was going down this more authentic route of writing stuff that's honest about my life and deep and emotional and stuff. And also musically, I wanted to go down more of a boom bap, jazz inspired, authentic hip hop vibe. But I also knew that the majority of the white gays I was performing at Pride events don't know that music, don't understand that music, and what would be the point of me trying to sell that to them? So then I started making a lot of poppy, electro-based songs, which were stuff I wanted to do at the time, but I know that I was more pushed in that direction because I was trying to please my audiences and trying to provide uh, those Pride events with songs that would be upbeat and make get, get the crowd going. And I think that I um, shouldn't have done that. So things have been ticking along for you as an artist for a while. You've been making music uh, with your EPs and the album and well-produced stuff that is being well-received generally, albeit to a new and emerging market and people who half the time don't understand you. And then 2016 is the last time that you made music. Yeah, I, uh, I felt like I... 
almost um, burnt myself out putting out my Moxie album in 2009 because I spent about five years in my bedroom doing that, not very successful, and having been in a depression as well because uh, ongoing for many other things, but a lot, a lot of my close circle had left me in 2005 because they had to go to other countries. And so I just felt very isolated on my own and then stuck in my room trying to make this album happen and work out how to use logic you know i i didn't study how to use it there was no youtube or youtube tutorials <laughs> i just worked out how to do it myself and that takes a long time <laughs> so i was doing that and i and i was very busy also during that period of my career and i just burnt myself out so after the moxie album came out 2009 i already started to feel a little done with it, with music and performing. And there were many things that were annoying me about performing. Mostly that the majority of my gigs were pride events and the majority of pride events are run by people who have other jobs and don't normally do that job. Therefore, none of them are professionals and none of them are doing a good job, <laughs> the best job at it, you know? Uh, and so I'm just walking into calamity and things aren't the way that they are promised, you know? And that's stressful when you're trying to be the manager and the agent and the label and the performer, you know? I can't do, be all those hats and do all those things and go on stage and perform when I'm super angry because the stage manager hasn't given me the cordless mic that I need because otherwise I'm going to kill myself when I'm trying to dance and rap at the same state time with a corded mic, you know? Like just simple things like that were happening all of the time. And I just found it very frustrating. I wasn't happy. And then I tested for HIV and I, it was all negative. Um, but then I got infected on purpose by someone. I didn't realize that is what had happened until three years ago. <laughs> and so what year is this? Uh, 2011. A month after that, then I I got zero converted and got very sick, which is how you often get when you first get HIV. I just couldn't cope with life. So I left the flat that I was staying at. I went to stay with some friends and they looked after me for a year. If you grew up in the 80s, maybe even the late 70s, um, and you were gay, you thought you were going to get HIV. And what would that have I'm going to start having sex with other gay men and then I'm going to get AIDS. That was the story. It was almost already written out for you in your head. And you had living with that as a kid, as a teenager. And it, it, but in the 80s, what would, that, what would the end of that narrative have been for those who... Well, in the 80s, young, yeah. they would have just died often. Most, so many people died in the 80s and the early 90s um, because they didn't have the medicine and the... the, the, the the understandings that we do now. So yeah, I was, I got HIV at a point where I was more fortunate to take advantage of um, how far we'd got medicine wise. But mentally, you're still that kid is like, oh, I'm gonna get AIDS and then you get it. And then like, oh, well, I've just, just made true this prediction. Yeah, you know, like I was fearful, I was worried that it was going to stop me from traveling to America or to places or um, stop me from being cuboid performer or it was going to get me some bad press or I was going to be, oh, 
what a surprise the gay rapper got AIDS. Like, you know, like that, all of those stories are just revolving around in my head and it creates so much pressure that I just was unable to operate, affecting my mental health massively. But I had a very good boyfriend at the time who I met just after I became HIV positive and we were together for about five years and he helped me through that process a lot, many ways. And how did he help? What was helpful? Because I'd been on my own in my room for so long, I, I'm naturally very antisocial. I don't really like people. <laughs> I think I don't need them. And I've gone, I went such a long time without really tapping into them or being social. And then I got sick because of it, you know? And then it was him that made me realize you need people. You need friends that you see regularly. You need to open up and talk to people because I just wasn't talking to anybody about anything, you know, I've always in my head. So he really helped me become a bit more human, <laughs> I guess. And in that, he helped me with the with the shame I was just dealing with with being HIV positive. I knew I just didn't want to do music anymore. Not in the way that I'd been doing it anyway. And so from about 2015, the year before the album was released, I already was like, I don't really want to do this. I have no idea what I wanted to do instead. Uh, and since 2012, my party R&C, the Queens of Hip Hop and R&B, which is a, a party I run with um, Neil Prince and David O, we started in 2012 and it's still going. It's a queer party celebrating all of the females of R&B and hip hop, which is the the people I've been celebrating anyway in my entire life. Um, that's been doing really well. So I was suddenly DJing a lot more rather than DJing a little bit. Suddenly this party's taken off. And then once that takes off, then you get more bookings because R and She's famous. And so most of that decade, I was DJing more than performing. Um, and after I put the King EP out in 2016, DJing was just my main method of making money. I like DJing now and again. I don't like having it as my main job. I don't like having to be in a club at 4 a.m. every weekend, two or three nights a week. It's exhausting. I'm 43. I don't really like crowds. I don't drink alcohol. I don't like socializing in large groups. So possibly working in a nightclub isn't the best it's, no, career it's, choice. It's not me. I do <laughs> love music and I do love music selecting and playing music. I love that. And I love sharing my taste. That's what I love. And I'm also very good at it. I'm very good over these past 10 years, especially I'm, I've realized I'm a good DJ. I mean, give me an empty room and I can fill it quickly. I know how to play the songs, what order to play. I'm, I'm good at it. I'm very good. I'm better than I expected. So I've spent four or five years floating along with no dream, no passion, and just going to DJ and then coming home and that's it. I realized I was daydreaming about something and I'd been doing that same daydream quite often over the past like few weeks. And, I, and then when I caught myself, I was like, oh, Marco, you have a dream. 
you've not had dream in years <laughs> and now you keep dreaming about something that means you have something that you're passionate about it was a very it wasn't like I was desperate to do it but it was just something that kept reoccurring and that's comedy aside from hip-hop comedy is my other huge love Victoria Wood is my hero god bless you for that she I is wonderful love her she is part of my fiber and my brain has been structured around her comedy and who she is and I, her identity and everything. So, and since I was 12, I was when I first introduced Victoria Wood, an audience with was the first thing that I saw. And uh, well, there's wit I, in there's wit in your raps though. There's wit and humor in there. For sure. This this um, this my raps were a vehicle for me to be humorous. In fact, I think there are many rhymes I wrote that I think are hilarious that other people never got. Because I think that with hip hop, not all hip hop's the same, but certainly the more traditional, authentic hip hop has a lot of wit. It has a lot of clever wordplay and, uh, and it's humorous and sassy and can be cutting. And I love that. I love that element of hip hop. So I always try to bring that into the rhymes that I write. So unless you are a hip hop aficionado and know about that kind of wit element of hip hop, then you will probably miss it in my music because you're not looking out for it, you don't understand it. But if you do know about hip hop and you listen to music, maybe you don't like how, maybe you don't think I'm that good of a rapper, but I hope that you think I'm a good lyricist because I think I can write some very clever, witty rhymes. But now I want to translate that into doing some stand-up. And um, I don't know if I'll be any good, but it's the only tiny glimmer of passion I have at the moment, so I must follow that light because I don't have any other light to follow. Hey, this is John from the Song Surfing Podcast. Song Surfing is a music discovery show featuring some of the best independent music from around the world. A huge variety of genres are covered, from Malaysian punk to Detroit hip-hop to jazz from Iceland and a whole lot more. If you love hearing excellent music and like to discover something new, then come Song Surfing with me. Song Surfing is available on all your favorite podcast apps and at songsurfingpodcast.com. We grew up in, in a situation where nobody really knew what was going on with HIV and AIDS. People were dying. There was a lot of fear. But then we jump forward and we have the internet. We have anything that you want to know, you just type in what is and you can find it out. Anything. Anything. We didn't have that luxury before 15 years ago. Every kid today has that luxury, but they don't use it. And that's fucking annoying because when we were in the dark, we didn't know about stuff. People were dying. People don't need to die anymore because we have medication. But that stigma is still there because they're not educating themselves or the, and also they're not being educated. That's something to do with the schools or the system that everybody, not just queer people, everybody needs to understand about HIV and AIDS and syphilis and uh, all the STIs and where they come from and how they got you having sex with someone who's regularly taking HIV medicine means they do not have enough of the virus in their blood or semen to pass it on to you. Therefore, they cannot transmit it to you. This is basic information that's available to everyone and you don't know about it. And you're a gay man living on a gay app often, you know, 
and you're not educating yourself and you don't understand and that's just fucking ignorant do you get people shaming you on things like scruff and grinder yes with scruff um you can have an option to say if you are which um uh, positive or on prep or undetectable or negative um a few years ago i kind of liked this i thought it was good now i don't uh if i say that i am positive or undetectable i get a lot less traction i get less people messaging me i get less people messaging me back if i message them first particularly younger people anyone under the age of 35 if you've got the word undetectable positive on your profile and you message them they're not likely to get back to you really you a week later you tell it off your fucking profile and you message them again then they get back to you the problem is, is these fucking idiots think like this. They think that if you only have sex with negative people, that is protecting yourself. That is delusional, and it's actually so incorrect, it's the opposite. People who have HIV go to the doctors every six months. They take medicine all the time. They're getting checked more frequently than any other person. Therefore, their health is usually more tip-top than any negative person. Not just sexual-wise, cancer. You might have a bit more risk to get cancer when you get HIV, but you're also less risk of dying of cancer because your doctors check you more often than if you didn't have HIV. Do you understand? So having sex with someone who is positive isn't unsafe or unhealthy. It's more healthy because that person is more aware of their own status and aware and taking medication and are being checked up by doctors to make sure that they're always undetectable. So that makes them safer. Secondly, anybody that's saying negative is not negative. They are guessing they are negative. Because if you have a test today, and you have a test for syphilis and HIV and gonorrhea, and it's an immediate turnaround, a couple of hours test, those tests are only negative, if they all come back negative, for a period, a window period, between two and six weeks ago. <laughs> So it doesn't mean it's you're a negative. Snapshot of the past. Exactly. It doesn't mean you're negative now. It means you're negative six weeks ago. So anyone that's like going, oh, I'm negative, or using that as some sort of uh, pass to be able to get sex is an idiot. And anyone that accepted the pass is also an idiot. You get HIV from negative people. You do not get HIV from people who know they're positive. You get it from people who don't know they're positive yet, which are the people that tell you they're negative. It is much safer to have unprotected sex with someone who's on medication and positive than it is to have sex with someone who's negative. You have to remember, often people lie. And people can say, oh, I'm negative. I got tested two weeks ago. But they've had sex 20 times in those two weeks. I think also it's really important that we call it out, that all of us call it out, be they people who are positive, people who are negative. As a community, when someone texts you and says, are you clean? I think, I think we should all, as a community, write back and go, do, do yourself some learning. And then come back. And well, play. I just say, can you not use that word? Because it implies HIV positive people are dirty. And then they get it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's the QBOY. Still so fly, of course. <laughs> yeah. Kicking in from the London streets over heavy US beats. This is a Tory fixed for you production. 
Yeah, come on. Yeah. What? Kick it, kick it. Uh. Don't have to be signed to major to be major talent. I'm pointing always fair, cause Libra's a balance. Clowns season is over, so fools go back to school. I'm serious about my shit, the, the mic is my tool. The studio, my workshop, manufacturing hip hop. Uniform, backy cords, and a puma zip top. Craft the new sounds like a carpenter. Pull like a bartender, it's called the Uck and Bull, and a ball as a star bender. The other issue I have with these apps, with with this listing of um, negative, positive, undetectable, is that negative people seem to think that they need to put that they're negative because they think they're an advantage being negative. They think that by putting negative on their profile, that is better than putting positive or undetectable, and they're more likely to get a hookup and more likely to get attention and sex because they think being negative is better and they need to promote this. That is disgusting. If you have negative on your grinder or scruff profile, get rid of it now. You don't need it there. You don't need to boast about the fact that you're negative. That's like boasting about the fact that you're white in a racist world or boasting that you're a man in a sexist world. It's bullshit. Stop doing it. Marcus, what do you think your 15-year-old self would think of you? Oh. (laughs) I have no idea. I don't know. Uh, in, in all honesty, I have achieved every dream I ever had. Uh, my first dream was I wanted to be friends with Five Star. Well, guess what? I'm friends with Five Star. I then wanted to be friends with Victoria Wood and Salt and Pepper. Well, I'm friends with Salt and Pepper, and I met Victoria Wood several times and have le- several letters from her. I made connections with all the people that I grew up idolizing. I then ticked off all the things I wanted to do. When I was eight, I knew that I wanted to be a choreographer, I wanted to dance, I wanted to perform, I wanted to be a pop star, I wanted to make music videos. You know, these are all weird dreams I had growing up. Well, I've done all of them. <laughs> I've traveled around the world. I've, I've actually achieved every tiny little dream, even if I didn't realize it was a dream, but everything that I was like manifesting as a kid, it happened. Two lap proofs, you bark with no bite. Shouting on the mic, don't make people listen. Talking about guns, don't substantiate your mission. You need talent, guns, those plus brings that a new phone. Don't make enough gimmicks to get presents. Where can people find your music online? I, uh, all the songs are on um, SoundCloud. So all my albums are on SoundCloud uh, under my Cuboy music. Everything's Cuboy music. Says so bring it in, QFAM, the QFAM collective. Introducing Miss Fontaine, Wayne Latham, Grace Orlando, Ilform, Catania, Icicle, Mr. Maker, Nine Bob, Gideon, yeah, yeah, Noki, out, I'm out, we're safe. We've heard a lot of your music. Throughout this episode, we've been hearing bits and bobs, but uh, I think we've been saving the best till last. So if there was one song that would be the perfect gateway track into your catalogue to make people absolutely fall in love with your music and you, what would that track be? Well, it depends on the person (laughs) and what their interests are. But from a Q-Boy brand perspective, 
I think that a good song to start with is QBOY is just so fly. I mean, the song itself is an introduction to me and my name and what I'm about. So it's got the hip hop bravado, cockiness, sexuality. So, I mean, that's a good song to start with. QBOY is just so fly. Who was the first gay MC to take over the UK? Me, QBOY, and I'm here to play. To rum your beat and yo, ham your mic. Let me rock every fat cave, I undecided and die. Some communities are made up from the smallest of minds. Negative reactions, what I used to get all the time. Prejudice, cause I don't fit the stereotype. You rapping is something you reckon you ain't ready to like. Which is why I'm here to help you broaden your minds. Time you realize being gay and urban ain't never a crime. You wanna look like, but none actually do. R&B is code for rap. Which with these queers is too crude Sick you fags acting dressing hip hop cool When the nearest you look meant to is like mm, Moulin Rouge I know MTV bass is on when you're chilling at home And I heard that Kanye West tone you got on your phone Drop the attitude, relax and be who you be Hip hop cool, urban homo styling smooth just like me Drop the attitude, relax and be who you be Hip hop cool, urban homo styling smooth just like me Get back, man, I can beat Superman just like G Hackman. Super cute rapping, acting, dancing, DJ Batman. Fact, poison twice before they let me fuck em. See my size, change your minds, chicken out, so I suck em. Of all of you, man, and it's cock in this world. Better than any bitch, female, woman, lady, or girl. Cube boy governs a mass body of testosterone, man. Filled stadiums bigger than a milli dome. Professionals got tight testicles, city boys in suits. All got the cube watch, cause I'm sexy and damn cute. For this reason, to save them all face, they keep emergency tissues. In a little briefcase Q-B-O-Y is just so fly Smooth tone body and footballer size Hair is cut with cuts looking hip with the design Keener make it seem as though it's etched in the lines With a chisel, sizzle in the sun, tan skin deep Slide cross his dancer with pumas on my feet I've been to the gym recently, my body you wanna kiss My definition, my definition is this My definition, my definition is this My definition, my definition is this there are those punks who wanna make me a challenge You thinking I'm a pushover like I've got no talent Didn't know I could flow canary all in Spanish To Edison Cabrone to Ramparate Nariz You need to be taciturn, you too loquacious Callate and mira my gun, I'm mucho mucho pesetas Is this the pace that you wanted a battle at? Cause I switched up my style like cringe is the battle cat But I speak of the red bus that I took to Lewis Ham UK rappers riding yellow cabs and looking foolish man not this in the USA, just proud of what I got James Bond Blade, EastEnders and Fish and Chip Shops Got a reputation facing homophobic hip-hop nation Lacing a racing station, giving it all a brand new taste Then you gotta step up the game, man, if you're on my stoop And don't fuck with me, chickens, if you're in my coop I'm spreading infectious rhymes worldwide like czar Spitting out this lines to you bar after bar Original in my rhymes, you're a teeth and a stealer All you do is add to my lines just like a co-dealer Marcus Brito, a.k.a. Q-Boy, thank you so much for coming on in the key of Q. It's been a, a real genuine pleasure for me. Uh, I wasn't bullshitting when I said I've in, really enjoyed your music for the nearly 20 years now. Thank you, Dan, and uh, thank you for having me here. Thank you for taking the time to appreciate me and appreciate all the other artists that you are covering on your podcast. So I think that they must appreciate it as much as I do. So thank you. you be cut to colourful shreds like wedding confetti Left out when a cold like an alopecia yay. I bring the flavour and substance like bolognese and spaghetti because I'm real hip-hop faggot. You're just a faggetti.
Thanks for listening to this episode. You can support In the Key of Q via Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Theme music is by Paul Lee Nidu at UnstoppableMonsters.com with press and PR by Paul Smith. Help others discover new queer musicians by rating and reviewing In the Key of Q wherever you find podcasts. Thanks to Kaj and Murray for their continued support and to you for subscribing. The show is made of Pup Media. I'm Dan Hall. Go listen to some music and I'll see you next Tuesday. Brandon James Gwynn is the next episode's guest on In the Key of Q. Can you guys make an app where you you click the Sondheim title and it just has an icon? You know, like five stars, but it's little bottles of poppers. Oh, you want to see Pacific Overtures? Well, that's a that's a five bottle of Captain Rush right there. That's Brandon James Gwynn. Next episode on In the Key of Cube.